It's Sunday, March 3rd, and you're listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. PNP is a movie podcast interrupted by a baseball discussion between two old friends. I'm Tom Hockey. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on Peanuts and Popcorn, we start with an extra long popcorn with two reviews of nominees for Best Picture of 2023, Anatomy of a Fall, and American Fiction. We will also reveal our favorites for the major Oscar categories as well as predict the winners. In an abbreviated version of Peanuts, we'll talk about another black ace, former twin guardian Mudcat Grant. Cody Bellinger returns to the north side. Are the Cubs at least as good as they were last season? Finally, the Philadelphia Phillies have done away with their dollar hot dog promotion. Tom and I are left to wonder why. How are you doing, Tom? Oh, well, I relish in talking about that last bit, uh, but I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well on this Sunday morning. How about yourself? Good. I'm doing well. You know, uh, Tom Skilling retired. His last yeah. day was a couple days ago. I saw his last broadcast here at Michigan. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Well, what was great about it was there was one last bit of severe weather for Tom to kind of come in and weigh in on and, and you know, get us all informed as to this massive storm that was approaching. And it was just, you know, great way for him to go out. And, and they were all sorts of tributes from other broadcasters from all over the city, from different TV stations, you know, and that was really, I mean, he, he, this is a guy who commanded a tremendous amount of respect. I mean, everybody loved him. He was totally Chicago. I always tell the story about how my father was here in town from Cincinnati and we were waiting to go to dinner and we were watching WGN and the weather came on and Tom was giving, you know, those long reports with all the data and information. And my father was just like, my God, can this guy just shut up? Tell me what the temperature is going to be. And I said, <laughs> I said, dad, you can say what you want to about me, but I'll be damned if I'm going to sit here and listen to you run down Tom Skilling. Well, I hope you didn't strike your father, Leo. No, I didn't. I should, but I, you know, but it really, I mean, because I'd lived in Chicago for twenty years at that point, and and right. and you know, Skilling for me was the man. He always was the man. He just gave great info, and and he didn't care. You know, uh, he was just going to give as much information as possible, and he was excited about it, and he got other people excited about it. He's going to be missed. Yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to live in Chicago for 37 years, and I um, he was my go-to guy for weather at all yeah. times. I believe at one point he was the highest-paid weatherman in the United States of all television. Um, and so I understand what your father is saying, though. I think that's oh, a yeah. that's a fair assessment <laughs> because it's because you should. It, it's like what the old improv teacher Viola Spolin used to say: "Give me something wonderful right away." Don't don't make me wait for it. And when it comes to the weather, if someone's looking to see the weather, they really want the facts. They don't want to yeah. talk about isobars and, yeah. and 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 other things. However, in his defense, he was as accurate of, as any weatherman I've ever um, witnessed, including the ones here in Michigan. Um, and so I got to give him credit. Kind of a complicated guy. You could almost make a movie out of this guy because his brother, Jeffrey Skilling, yeah. Bellin, convicted yeah. Enron shyster, yeah. um, 
there's this dichotomy because Tom is generally considered to be one of the nicest guys on and off camera. People yeah. loved him. He was, uh, he was into house music. A lot of people don't know that he wow. at one point almost weighed 400 pounds yeah. uh, and yeah. lost yeah. A, a tremendous amount of weight through uh, what a bariatric surgery or whatever, a couple of years ago, but basically it saved his life. That's the reason why he did it. He looks great. He's, you know, he's leaving with everything intact. I don't know that you've actually seen the last of him. I think, you know, as emeritus, you yeah, may no. see him from yeah. time to time. But because I have every channel in the world on my TV program, I went and, and fought, found GN and watched his last broadcast, broadcast, and it was really kind of a treat. But the thing that was interesting is nobody has a bad thing to say about Tom Scott. No, except no, no your dad. Does. Yeah, except my dad, exactly. And um, we lost someone rather important in the world of comedy. And uh, Richard Lewis passed this week. And that was very, very sad. You know, he's been sort of experiencing a bit of a revival uh, on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm as a recurring character. Um, and, you know, people, when I think about Richard Lewis, you know, I think back to the 80s and the 90s, you know, when when this guy would make regular appearances on David Letterman, and that was must-see TV. I mean, if Lewis was going to be on Letterman, you know, we'd all be like, oh, we checked a TV guide, you know what I mean? Or we checked a newspaper, you know, when back when we used to read newspapers, it would tell you who's going to be on the late night talk shows. We're like, oh, Richard Lewis is going to be on. We can't miss that, right. you know, because when you think about guys today, like Bill Burr or these big comedians today, like Nate Bergancy or yep. I don't know. So, you know, uh, Dave Chappelle, even Richard Lewis was that guy back in the nineties, he was the guy that everybody wanted to see because he would just crush it every single time he was on. Oh, it was great. I'm going to miss him. I really am. Back in the late seventies, um, I would do, uh, or I would go to some open mic nights, uh, doing standup comedy. And I actually saw him, uh, perform actually in oh, Detroit wow. in the late seventies when he was very, very young. Um, and, I, whenever I think of Richard, I always think of the color black because he always wore black clothes. His yeah. his outlook was kind of dire and black at all times, but very, very funny. You know, I'm a huge fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think it's way better than Seinfeld ever was. I know a lot of people disagree with me on that, but I'm a huge fan of that show. And he's an integral part of why that show, 50 years from now, they will still talk about it. Very poignant moment in last Sunday's episode, right before he died, they were on the golf course and he was telling Larry how he was going to bequeath some money to him. And, you know, Larry's like, I, I won't take your money. Don't, you know, they, they had this great, funny little moment, but now it turns out to be pretty poignant because that's the last time he was, you know, on the show. And then he passed a couple of days later. It crushed me. I really love the guy. I love his perspective. You know, him and Larry were born three days apart in the same hospital. Yeah, um, and, yeah, and, yeah. and they be, were, they knew each other from age of 12 and they were best friends later in life through comedy. So it's a, it's a huge loss. However, he's been unwell for a while. He had Parkinson's. It was announced that he had Parkinson's and he's, you know, uh, he has not looked well. It, it, there's a great line in that curve where he goes, which one of us looks worse, you or me? Because <laughs> Larry. Larry's looking old, too. I mean, yeah. 76 is not a good look. I'm, I'm just as a guy that's, you know, in my 60s now, next month I'll be 65 years old. Uh, wow. The fact is, 76 is not a good look. 65 is barely a, 
not so good look either, but 76 is really not a good look. You can't, I don't care if you're Warren Beatty, you can't hide it at 76. And Richard no. couldn't yeah. either. He was a pretty vain guy, just like everybody in Hollywood. So sad to, sad to see that, you know, the fact that he played himself with, and not everybody else on Curb Your Enthusiasm is, you know, yeah, he's playing himself. himself. Right, right. He, he, he had to be sold on it by, by Larry by Larry David and Larry David's this was his idea all of this kind of started in the 90s with the Larry Sanders show when people would go on and lampoon themselves and put you know basically play play fictional versions of themselves like Ted Danson Ted Danson's been on Curb Your Enthusiasm as Ted Danson for 24 years playing basically a fictionalized version of Ted Danson and so that's the thing about Richard Lewis he was he was an important cog in that to me, one of the great comedies television's ever produced, Curb Your Enthusiasm, sadly, but correctly wrapping up. It needs to wrap up. But um, I was really crushed by that. A lot of times, I, they, you know, these Hollywood desks, really, I, I'm nonplussed. This one, actually, I felt bad because I really liked him. Yeah, no, a lot of people did. He he was a wonderful guy and, and a great comedian. He would yeah. kill. He would absolutely He's kill. Correct, correct, correct. I just want you to know one thing. I'm not a monster. I need you to be precise. Tell me everything. Yes. I don't know what happened. I think he fell off the third floor. The window's open. The autopsy report is inconclusive. An accidental fall is going to be hard for us to defend. That's why there's an investigation for a more suspicious death. Because you were the only person there. And of course, you were his wife. Stop. I did not kill him. You complain about the life that you chose. You are not a victim. Not at all. Be fair. I am a man who's been cheated on. I can't stand anymore. I'm fighting. I'm innocent. You know that, right? Let's get right to the popcorn. And we're going to begin with the movie you selected which was Anatomy of a Fall. And this is a movie that has been nominated for Best Picture. And it is the story, basically, of a married couple uh, living in the French Alps. Uh, the They're both writers. Uh, Samuel is her husband. Yes, yeah, Sam. Dan- da- Daniel is not played by Daniel. It's played by a child actor, Milo Machado Grainer, who was great, by the way. Um, but anyway, so it's Samuel and Daniel. It's about a married couple and and their boy who and their son who basically has he is semi-blind. He sort of has partial blindness due to an accident that occurred a few years before. And Samuel and Sandra live. In the French Alps, uh, she's German. He's French. They communicate in English, so neither one has sort of an advantage as far as the language. But um, their marriage is kind of on the rocks, and uh, she she appears basically at the beginning of the movie where a young reporter comes to interview her about a new book that she's written. And meanwhile, her husband decides to turn on this really loud rap music which which torpedoes the interview 
and uh, really frustrates his wife. And he does it intentionally. And he puts this music, this annoying rap music on loop. So the woman can't basically interview her for this, uh, for this magazine. And, uh, you know, so you can tell that there's an underlying tension in this marriage as these two people are obviously having some issues. But as the movie goes on, the boy takes the dog out for a walk, even though he's partially blind, the dog sort of guides him around a little bit and he can still see a few things and find his way. But when he comes back, he finds his father's body lying in the snow in front of the house. And uh, the idea is that basically the father has fallen from the third story window of this house, hit something on the ground and is basically dead. And um, it was the mother who was home at the time who claims that she was sleeping or in her room working when this occurred. And so the police come, there's an investigation and they basically theorize that this woman killed her, killed her husband. And uh, they accuse her, they indict her. And the movie is her basically in court trying to uh, fight for her innocence in this matter. And what, what's interesting about this movie is not only is it a murder mystery, but it's also a courtroom drama. Yeah. And what's interesting about this as a courtroom drama is you get insight into the French legal system and the way that these things are sort of adjudicated. Uh, it's very different from an American courtroom. And that was kind of refreshing and interesting to sort of watch. But uh, but she basically has to prove that she did not kill her husband. And it's very, very difficult because she was the only one at home when it happened. And there are some details about the death that are sort of incriminating. And what's worse is that there are all these issues about their own relationship and how much they sort of despised one another and the things that they said about one another that perhaps could have been motivations for murder. And all these things come out in the trial. And it, it it's difficult to watch, especially if you've been married, because you know, when you're married to someone and you live with them for so long, I mean, you, there are good times for certain, but there are also very, very dark times. And there are times when you hate your partner with, with, with the hatred of a thousand sons. And maybe perhaps you even consider that murder might be something that is possible. And we, we've all been there, all of us who are married. And, 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 and that's, I think, what is so interesting about this movie, because, you know, as we, see their own relationships sort of degenerate. You know, we, we are asked to sort of look at our own marriages and our own relationships and hold that lens up to our own, to our own lives. And, and that's what is kind of exciting about this movie. Um, it, it's hard to watch, I think, ultimately, because half the movie is in English, half of it is in French. And it, 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 it goes very, you know, the conversations that happen in the courtroom, it's all very, very quick and very, it happens all very fast and it's kind of hard to keep track of it. But I think ultimately what this movie is about is that the boy who is present in the courtroom for all of the arguments made by the prosecution and the defense, he, as a blind child, is the jury. He's the one who she, who Sandra has to convince of her innocence. Okay. And he's the one who's like, is she guilty? Is my mother guilty of murdering my father, you know, and that's what he is going through his mind as he sort of is taken away from her as she's on trial for this. And 
he he's given a kind of a special steward to sort of look after him. So, you know, she can't she can't basically use time alone to convince him of her innocence. And, you know, it's a dark movie. I, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but I will say that it was an extremely well done movie. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it, although I would not recommend it for everyone. So that's that's I'm got a similar review. I I do recommend this film for age appropriate folks to watch that have, have open minds. Um, Justin Triet, the 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 guy that directed this film, um, is an up for best director this year too at the Oscars. This was extremely well done. That was reminiscent of some of the 1950s U.S. courtroom dramas. Um, specifically, uh, one that came to mind for me was 12 Angry Men and yeah. uh, Witness for the Prosecution. It, it really what you you described is absolutely correct. It's it's a courtroom drama. However, the anatomy of a fall is kind of a is kind of a play on words there because it's really the fall of their marriage. Right. It's not really has right. nothing to do with the crime or the or the alleged crime. Um, it's really about the fall of of the marriage. And you're absolutely right. I'm a married person and I've, I've, we've, I've gone down those roads before, but, but not to this extreme. I do believe that this marriage was in big trouble though, for a yeah. couple of different reasons we're not going to go into. Um, by the way, that was 50 cent, the rapper yeah. that he was, yeah, their right. dog's yeah. name was Snoop. So we got to yeah. pay some respect here for the, to the rap world. Uh, but uh, the 50 cent song plays an integral part because it's actually almost like a, a Jamaican uh, yeah. A version of of uh the 50 cent song but it's uh this year i have to call out sandra hewler who plays the lead female and is also nominated for best actress and and any other year would probably win she was phenomenal you can make a case that maybe she is the best actress um but she also is in the zone of interest she plays the wife in the zone of interest and oh, i'm telling wow. you keep your eyes on this uh, this this woman, Sandra Hewler, uh, I don't believe she'll win an Oscar this year, but I think she was really, really good in this film. The ambiguity of did she do it? Did she not? You know, I don't know what this this could go either way. As far as the language uh, thing that you referenced, I like that. So that wasn't a negative that I kind of. You know me, I like foreign films and I'll take everything that comes with it. Except if it's a great story, I can, yeah, I almost don't need to read the subtitles if it's a great story. I'll just, and, and great acting. And this film had all of those things. Um, well, the, the reason why I bring that up, Tom, is that I watched this movie. We streamed it here at home yeah. and my wife fell asleep, you know, and, and it was hard for her to yeah. keep up and, and watch the dot. You know, she has a hard time reading the subtitles and and it's complex, you know. It's yeah. a complex right. script. And, right. and, and while I have sympathy for that, that's her problem. That's not our problem. Like it doesn't yeah, impact me right. at all. And so I do agree. Um, what in one pipe part about her falling asleep? It was too long. If there's a negative comment about this film, it was probably thirty minutes too long. They could have really edited this down so that it was more like uh, Argentina, nineteen eighty five. That was a very taut. Uh, you know, the yeah, the, right, the, the right. scenes in there, they really tightened them up. Better film, too, by the way. This is a very good film. For me, it comes in number four on my list. My list. And, and because 
it, it just was great performances by the prosecutor. He didn't, he thought that she oh, yeah. killed and, and he yeah. just, he, he just had this look on his face at all times. Like I'm not buying this at all. The yeah. young boy played by uh, Milo Grainer was, it was a revelation. That's some of the best child acting that I've ever seen really in, in cinema history. It's all, it's almost too bad. He, he could have been nominated for best supporting actor. He, and by the way, he cracks the case. I, I won't yeah. want to give anything away, but he cracks the case. Um, well, and, and it's no small thing. It's a, it's kind of a metaphor that justice is blind. Yes. And, and he's the one Correct. who has to be Correct. He's blind, you know. You know, and, all of these themes are being touched on, I thought, in a pretty well, if not overlong way by Triette, the director. Um, you know, this won the Palm d'Or at Cannes, uh, it, you know, as the best film. I don't think it is the best film, but I think it's a darn good film. And I would recommend it basically to every open-minded person. If you don't like subtitled films, don't watch this movie. That's that's what I say to people like that. I get it. Some people don't. I have a friend of mine that won't watch black and white films. And I'm like, I, I feel bad for that's you. Yeah, I, I feel bad for you. <laughs> so anyways, I highly recommend this. How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? If I is, Ray Ray is gonna be a real father this time around. Thank you. Monk, your books are good, but they're not popular. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. Black, right? I see what you're doing. We sold your book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. Now, is Stag a pseudonym? Yeah. Mr. Lee can't use his real name. Is this based on your actual life? They ran 300,000 copies. Your books changed people's lives. They're offering $4 million for the movie rights. Yes! We're thinking we can get it out in time for Juneteenth. All right, excellent. Well, last night I went to see our next choice, uh, and this was the movie that I selected, which is also up for an Academy Award, and that was um, American Fiction, uh, starring Jeffrey Wright and Tracy Ellis Ross. It's the story of a writer who's also a college professor, and he's intelligent, uh, very, very you know, talented as a writer. He's gotten several books published, but the problem is, is that the books he writes, while very, very smart and very good, don't seem to make a lot of money. They're not very popular. Uh, there's just not a lot of public interest in these books, and um, and it's and it's funny because he sees other lesser writers getting more publicity, making more money, and being more famous, essentially doing things that he essentially pander or pander to the tastes of the sort of white book reading movie going public um, movies that by that are by black or, or books by black authors that sort of uh, make cliches out of the black experience that uh, black people are all rappers or in gangs or or experience a lot of violence and they're speak in these sort of ebonics ways that, you know, that are sort of 
cliches about American black people that and and these things are very very popular and they tend to make a lot of money but but he doesn't think very much of them and so he's having difficulties at work he's drinking too much he's insulting his students there's a great scene where they're reading a book uh in, in his in his college class American n-word and he writes it on the wall and it makes one of his white students uncomfortable and she complains that you know, why do we have to sit here? Why should we have to sit here and look at that word? And he as a black professor says, well, I think you'll get over it because God knows I did, you know? <laughs> and so he gets called out on the carpet for that. So what he basically does is he writes a book as, as a joke called My Pathology, which is about a rap, not a rapper, but a black man who kills his father and it uses all these yo, what you doing and all, you know, it's just sort of every cliche about black people that you could ever imagine he uses. And he submits it to his publisher, he submits it to his agent, who who, who in turn submits it to a publisher and he gets a $700,000 advance <laughs> on the book. And now suddenly this thing that he writes as a joke becomes the most popular, successful money generating thing that he's ever written. And, and the problem is, is that he needs the money because in his family, his mother, who is uh, sort of, she has Alzheimer's, his older sister, who was kind of looking after her, she dies of a heart attack. And he suddenly finds himself responsible for making sure that his mother is taken care of. And he has to put her in a very expensive nursing home. So suddenly this book deal and, and the subsequent movie offers that come with it are very, very important to sustaining his own life. But the problem is he's not happy about it. You know, he doesn't like that this thing that he's written as a joke, that all these white people are lapping it up. They want to release it on Juneteenth and it's just going to be the big thing. And his point is, is that what white people want from black people is to be absolved. And this book and the subsequent movie kind of helps absolve white people from their guilt over the way that black people have been treated. And he's, as a person, is just as white as anybody else. I mean, he grows up in Boston. His father was a surgeon. His, his, his sister is an OBGYN. His brother is a plastic surgeon. He's a college professor. I mean, he's as bourgeois as anyone. Yet, he has to sort of assume this persona as this sort of street black guy because that's what's palatable to the american public in order to be successful and i just thought this movie this movie i enjoyed this movie more than any of the 10 oscar nominees i'm, I'm not going to say that it was the best movie but i certainly enjoyed the joke i enjoyed the satire i laughed out loud at many many moments in this movie i thought this was brilliant if you haven't seen this, you will love it. And uh, and I, I just, I, what did you think? So when we do our little Oscar review, I'll, I'll talk about how competitive this year is. I, yeah. I thought this was a very good, uh, very good film in a, in a year of very good films. Um, I give this film four stars. However, it's not my favorite. It's, it's seventh on my list. Um, I wow. do think that Jeffrey Wright, was great as usual playing 
the dual Thelonious Monk Erickson, his yeah. real yeah. character, and Stag R. Lee, his gnome <laughs> de plum, is a very thoughtful film, and it was refreshing to see whites as stereotypes. And oh, let me, yeah. Let me tell time. you, whites yeah. are, and you're absolutely right about uh, Thelonious uh, Monk, or Monk as he was called. Um, he was as white as they come. All his girlfriends were white. He, he, he you know, he, even when you look at where they lived, they're the only, you know, people of color were his relatives that were there, you know, seemingly. Um, Sterling K. Brown as his brother is, he just found out he was gay brother is, yeah. is fantastic. Um, and some of the best actors, he's rightly so nominated for best supporting actor. Great to see Leslie Uggams, who was in Roots, by the way. Yes, this is a, a woman that goes way, way back playing the uh, the mother that's be, that become addled and has Alzheimer's. Um, if, there, if I have a critique of this film is that, ironically, women are basically treated as accessories in this film. You know, it's... It, it's um, I disagree. It's well, a rain. No, I mean, I, no. I think it's a true critique, but I, it may be a stretch criticism. But I do think it's a, it's true that a, the women um, characters, uh, again, I just, I don't, I just don't think that they were as developed um, as Stag R. Lee, or as he's called at one point, a three-legged dog. Yeah, uh, right. yeah. When they were describing him, there's a reason why one of my favorite directors, Wes Anderson has Jeffrey Wright in his stable of actors. If, if Anderson makes a film, chances are Jeffrey Wright is going to have a yeah. prominent role in it. There's a reason for that because he's really, really a great actor. I would highly recommend this film. I do think that it is a condemnation on, on many different things, um, yeah. but certainly race relations in the United States. If I have a... If, if, Personally, the only thing that stops this from being a greater film is that I thought the ending was slightly contrived. Um, but other than that, you know, I really I have to say I enjoyed this film a lot. It's four stars. It's 297 on my list of films. Um, you know, Anatomy of a Fall is 277. So these films are very close in my mind. Again, an extremely competitive year. One of the most competitive in the last 10 years. Um, and so um I really like this film. Well, it's just, and it is, it's, it's wonderful on so many levels. And it's great because, you know, as a college professor, he is suddenly invited to, to become a judge for this prestigious literary award that he's never won. So now he has to collaborate with these other writers on what's the best book of the year. And then submitted is the book that he wrote, but he can't, you know, he has to suddenly judge his own work. And he's like, I don't want my book to win this award. Are you kidding me? This book I wrote as a joke. And now I have to judge it as a, as to whether or not it's going to win a, an award that I've always wanted to win, but never did. You know, there are just some really funny situations. And, uh, and you got to, you know, and also I just love also seeing Issa Rae who I think is yeah. delightful in anything she does. She is. You know, she, she as Sitara Golden, the other writer in this, uh, who writes the, the black book that everybody loves so much. That is the yep. inspiration for him to write his book. On to the Oscars. And like I yeah. said, we'll start uh, our uh, discussion with best supporting actress real 
quickly. Uh, we have Emily Blunt from Oppenheimer, Danielle Brooks from The Color Purple, America Fer Ferrara for Barbie, Jodie Foster for Nyad, and Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. Well, I think that the one will win is uh, Divine Joy Randolph. I think that a lot of them could win for many reasons, but but I think that Holdovers and Divine Joy Randolph, she was wonderful. I think the way that she does that Boston, not only a Boston accent, but it's that black Boston accent of, of that Roxbury accent. And it's just so delightful to hear. It's so natural. And, and she gives that movie a certain soul, a certain heart that uh, made it absolutely delightful. I think she will win. Yeah, I agree. I, if, in fact, of all the categories we're about to talk, this one is the most, most clear cut to me. And again, a very competitive year, but Divine Joy Randolph um, is head and shoulders, the, does the best acting in, in this category and some of the best acting in, in the, of, this, of the year in films, to be honest. Um, so let's move on to Best Supporting Actor. Well, nominees Sterling K. Brown, American Fiction, Robert De Niro, Killers of the Flower Moon, Robert Downey Jr., Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling, Barbie, Mark Ruffalo, Poor Things. I, I'm going to go with the one I liked was, was uh, Robert De Niro and Killers of the Flower Moon. But again, these are all five really excellent nominees. Any one of them could win, should win. But if I had to choose, I'm going to say Robert De Niro. Do you agree? I do again. Um, I, and next week I'll release who I think is going to win. But this is really who I want to win. And it's De Niro, De Niro, De Niro. Unbelievable performance. One of the greatest of his career, as we've already discussed. Um, really liked Ryan Gosling and Barbie, though, I have to say. And I also liked um, Mark Ruffalo and Poor Things. But uh, I, I wasn't crazy about Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. He's probably going to win. Um, okay, so let's talk about Best Director. Um, we have Anatomy of a Fall, Justine Triet, Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese, Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan, Poor Things, Yorgos Lanthimos, and The Zone of Interest, Jonathan Glazer. Well, I think Yorgos Lanthimos did something just absolutely unbelievable with Poor Things. It was one of the most original efforts in directing that I've ever seen. But that being said, I think... Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer will win. I think he's probably going to win too. But again, I'm picking who I thought was the best director. I saw all of the films. And for me, it's Jonathan Glazer in the zone of interest. Hmm. All right. All right. All right. Uh, okay. So yeah. let's move on to best actor. Uh, we have Bradley Cooper, Maestro, Coleman Domingo, Rustin, Paul Giamatti, The Holdovers, Cillian Murphy, Oppenheimer, and Jeffrey Wright, American Fiction. Well, you know, all again, all of them are, I think, worthy candidates. Uh, but I do think that Cillian Murphy will probably win this one. And I pick I pick Paul Giamatti for the holdovers. Really? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't mind either way. And and Paul Giamatti, I think, probably for my money, does a better job, but I think Cillian Murphy will win. I think Oppenheimer will get a lot of these awards, he'll suck them up. It's kind of yeah. like the black hole that draws everything towards it. You know, it was just such a big production and I think he'll win. Let's move on to best actress. We have Annette Benning for Nyad, Lily Gladstone, Killers of the Flower Moon, Sandra Hewler, Anatomy of a Fall, Carrie Mulligan, Maestro, and Emma Stone, Poor Things. Well, if I had to choose, if I had a vote, I would say Emma Stone. 
because I think her role in that was just the things she did in that were just unbelievable. However, I think that Lily Gladstone from Killers of the Flower Moon will probably win this. That that's who I want to win. But once again, this is an unbelievable tight category. This could be like you said a couple shows ago, one of those years where we have surprise winners because there's such great uh, nominees and films and products that you could see split votes. This is one yeah. of those categories. I think it's safe to say I don't think Annette Benning's going to win. However, any of the other four, including Sandra Hewler, not, would not surprise me because they were all that good. You're right about Emma Stone. Emma Stone may have had the the, the biggest stretch of acting. Um, however, I do pick L Lily Gladstone to win it um, for Flowers of the Killer Moon. All right, so now we have to move on to our Best Picture nominees. Uh, we have 10 of them. So American Fiction, Maestro, Anatomy of a Fall, Oppenheimer, Barbie, Past Lives, The Holdovers, Poor Things, Killers of the Flower Moon, and The Zone of Interest. Who? What is our best picture? You know, I, I often suffer from recency bias, and, and American Fiction was the last movie I saw, but, but I'm not going to say that it was the best movie of 2023. I'm going to go with Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I'm going to stick with that. You know, I saw that a few weeks ago, or actually more than that, but but the point is, is that I think this is one of Scorsese's best efforts. It is a story I knew nothing about. And he depicted it in such a way that it really made it important to me. And I think everybody should see this movie. But it also, at its heart, is ultimately a Scorsese movie. He made it in his style. And I think ultimately that's what makes it, for me, the best picture. I think Oppenheimer will probably win again because I think it's just a bigger production. But, uh, you know, I, I liked Killers better than Oppenheimer. Yeah. And, and I, again, once again, we agree. Um, seven of these films could win Best Picture. That's how yeah. good they are. Seven. Yeah. Of them. You, you don't see that happen. Usually it's a two or three horse race. Sometimes it's not even. It's, it's a two horse or it's just one film that sticks out clearly. Nothing will surprise me except if Barbie, Past Lives, or Maestro wins, I would be yeah. shocked by that. But yeah. any of the other seven films is worthy. And that's that's really saying something. A great year. Killers of the Flower Moon is a film that I believe will they'll be talking about 100 years from now. I said it when we reviewed it. About this with my wife last night, you know, and she was t saying which movie she thought was the best. And she agrees with me that uh, Killers of the Flower Moon was the best movie that we saw. But, uh, you know, I don't know that it will win again. I think Oppenheimer should win. Uh, but you never know what's going to happen. And again, I think that ever since they expanded the category to 10 movies, uh, I think that it, it's nice because it leaves, it allows for movies to be included as nominees that, you know, ordinarily wouldn't it, when there were only five, obviously. It expands the category. It opens it up to better movies or more movies. And um, but I also think that it'll lead to some surprises. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this year's awards. I am as well.
So that leaves us to our peanuts. We'll open up the bag of peanuts and discuss baseball, as it were. And spring training is underway. And I am certainly thrilled about it. The nice thing is that I'm listening to baseball as I'm driving home. And that's always a wonderful thing. But I want to begin with the athletic series on uh, the Black Aces, which is a group of 14 African-American men who uh, have won 20 games or more pitching in the major leagues. And there were all sorts of great names on this list, Mike Norris, Dave Stewart, Bob Gibson. But the guy I wanted to talk about today was uh, Mudcat Grant. And Grant is an interesting guy. He pitched for the Indians. He pitched, or the Guardians now, as we call them. Uh, he also pitched for the Minnesota Twins. Um, and he was the first African-American guy to win 20 games in the American League. And that was kind of a shock. In fact, he wasn't even aware that he was approaching that until Howard Cosell called him, you know, after he'd won 18 games. And, and you know, he was a guy who was a very good pitcher for quite a long time and even turned into a very good relief pitcher. And, um, you know, when, when, when this list came out, which is part of an ongoing series in The Athletic, um, it was difficult to sort of come to grips with the fact that there were really so few African-American men who have won 20 games or have been that successful as starting pitchers in the major leagues. And it was nice to sort of uh, revisit the careers of these men, you know, and uh, I was curious if you had ever seen uh, Mudcat Grant pitch. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little young to have been able to see him, but maybe you had at some point. Do you ever recall anything like that? I just remember that I could very well have been because he pitched for the Twins. I was at, at Tigers. I went to a fair amount of Tiger games as a child, saw the Twins play there. I know I saw Harmon Killebrew. So there's a chance I might have seen him pitch. I just remember his baseball card because it was really cool. But yeah. can't grant had So, you know, this is a very interesting guy, you know, raconteur. He was a great singer, believe it or not. He was a great yeah, blues singer. Great, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the word on the street is he could break out in song at any time. I always liked a guy like that. Um, also, pretty good artist. He drew he drew little kitty cats on the uh, tongues of his uh, spikes, uh, and he was in a band called uh, Mudcat and the and the and the kittens. I think was the name of the yeah. band. Yeah, very interesting guy. Look, he won 145 major league baseball games. That yeah. is a significant number. Let me tell you, that's not a Hall of Famer. But no. he, he's not a Hall of Famer. But you know who should be in the Hall of Fame? That would be Lou Whitaker. But back yeah. to our regular scheduled program, Mudcat Grant um, won 21 games in 1965, I believe. Is And so, um, you know, in those days, it was more common to see pitchers go complete games. I mean, today, when you know, if a, if a pitcher has two complete games in a season – you know, that's yeah. considered yeah. extraordinary. Back in uh, Mudcat's, Mudcat's days, you know, he had 89 complete games as wow. a pitcher. Think about that. That may yeah. be more than all of the major league complete games in the last five years. Uh, yeah. You know, baseball's changed. But he but he was he was a character. Again, I remember his baseball card. And uh, I'm not surprised that he was a 20-game winner. He was, as I recall, he was a pretty decent hitter, too. Um, for, you know, he's just, he was just one of those guys you've met him in your life. They could paint, he could sing, he could dance, he could hit a baseball. He's kind of like myself. No, <laughs> I kid, I kid, I kid. 
You know, there's a, a great story I once read about Mudcat Grant. Uh, and this, I first became aware of this when I read the book, The Curse of Rocky Calavito. Oh, yeah. About all the bad luck. Detroit Tiger, Cleveland Indian. Yeah, that's right. But about all the bad, horrible, awful, funny things that happened to the Cleveland Indians or the Cleveland Guardians over the years. And he was uh, the broadcaster, the, he was the uh, color analyst on the radio for the Cleveland uh, team for a long, long time. And he was really well liked. And, you know, he was from Florida and he had this kind of Southern accent. And every now and then he would, uh, there were some malaprops that uh, he was kind of famous for. And very often uh, they would read uh, letters from uh, people who were listening. And he got a letter from uh, from from a couple of sisters, the the Kuntz sisters, K-U-N-T-Z, but he mispronounced their name. I'll uh, bet he did. He called them the Kuntz. Nice. The Kuntz. Yeah. And so he was corrected on the air and said, no, no, uh, you know, that, that's not the way you say their name. And then he, he had said after that, he said, well, maybe you're right. Well, anyway, these two cunts be writing to us, you know, <laughs> and it was just, you know, one of those great sort of moments that are really awkward and very funny that yeah. happened during a major league broadcast. Right. So, you know, he died, I think, in 2011, and he was very, very well loved and well respected by anyone who worked with him or played with him. And uh, you're talking about Mudcat? Yeah, Mudcat. Yeah. No, he died in 2021. 2021, really? Yeah, he, he lived oh, to be a he lived to be an old man. Oh wow! So yeah, yeah all right. But uh, but uh, peanuts and popcorn salutes, Mudcat Grant. Correct, correct. So, big fan. All right, so Cody Bellinger has re-signed with the Cubs. That's the big news here locally. Um, finally got him into camp. They got him an eighty million dollar deal for three years it's going to work like he gets 30 million for the first two and then 20 for the third and he has an opt-out after every year so he can go back on the market if he has a great year this year and see if he can get himself a longer term contract but this is interesting because you know bellinger was supposed to get this big long contract 10 years 180 million something like that or just even longer, he was going to get big, big money, but it just didn't happen. He didn't get the big offers that he thought. And, you know, his signing was delayed until after spring training began. And I think, you know, Boris kind of held the league hostage and the league was like, we're not going to pay him. And, you know, there've been hints of collusion, but the fact is, is that, you know, the money just wasn't there for this guy. And I was a little surprised, frankly. You know, this is a great story. Um, maybe the best story, actually, of the offseason, even though it's not Otani or it's not the, you know, the, mo the most important players. But this is very complicated because I suspect that um, uh, Scott Boros has lost his mojo and owners are tired of dealing with Boros and Boros clients. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a saying in negotiations that the next person that talks loses. And let's just say Bellinger lost big time in the negotiations because the Cubs, the Cubs were 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 chasing, and then they became chased by by Bellinger to to get this deal done. Um, so again, very complicated. Not exactly sure what the reason is there, even though I have my suspicions. 
And it, it really has nothing to do with Bellinger. It has more to do with Boris than it, than it does with Bellinger. But let's just talk about Bellinger for a second. If you look at his career, he's Mr. Every Other Year. He has a really great year, and then he has a down year. He takes a year off. He has a great year, it's a down year. He has injuries, it takes a year off. And so I suspect that he will revert a little bit in this coming year. He won't opt out, a la Javi Baez in Detroit, yeah. uh, who's maybe the highest paid awful player in the major leagues right now. Um, but it'll be interesting to see about Bellinger because there are some rookies nipping at their heels to get out into that, uh, uh, to get out yeah. on that field. And, and and so, you you know, you ask the question, um, are are the Cubs better? Are they, are they going to improve? I think they're going to improve because of the manager. Everything yeah. I'm reading yeah. about this is that this guy, I mean, nothing against David Ross and he very well may get another ma- manager job. This guy is more like Sparky Anderson than he is like David Ross. And so I, it's been my experience when you give a guy, you give a guy like that, he won, he took the Brewers, the, 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 the third world of the major leagues yeah. to the playoffs five of the last six years with mm-hmm. a third world budget. Yeah. I'm just telling you, when you have a manager that is that skillful with a bigger budget, um, I, and I do think the Cubs are going to spend some money because they were they were trying to get Otani just like the other two or three big teams, so they've got money to spend. I just think the the recipe is that yes, the Cubs will be better this year. I don't think they're going to the World Series, and they may not even make the playoffs. But I think they'll be a much more improved team than they were last year. Last year they they got some pitching early in the season. You know, Steele was phenomenal. Um, and Stroman contributed. And so it'll be interesting to see on this new pitcher, Amaganga or whatever. Imanaga. Imanaga, Imanaga yeah. who I saw pitch his first game yesterday. I saw him pitch. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, like a lot of pitchers now, it was getting roughed up because he was throwing flat pitches because that's what they're supposed to do. So it's hard to judge him. He's a competitive guy, but he's also 30 years old. And, you know, he, he wasn't perfect in the Japanese league. He's not like that other pitcher on the Dodgers. Right. Not Otani, I mean, yeah, who's yeah. a Cy Young type of guy. This guy's more of a Hendricks type of pitcher, I think, ultimately, which is not that nothing wrong with that, right? So I just think that, you know, we – Craig Council is going to is going to steer the ship to, to, to much greater um, waters or pastures or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm very optimistic on the Cubs. No, I, I am too. I think council, you know, and, and everything you've heard about what's going on in the Cubs camp is that he's really kind of shaken things up in terms of the way that they do things or go about their business. And council's really getting a sense of what the roster is and what each of these players can do in different situations. And I think that that tactically, he's really going to make a big difference for this team. And uh, I'm, very optimistic about the Cubs chances because, you know, when you look at the way the Brewers played over the last five, six years, they were always doing more with less. That's correct. It always seemed that he was able to get matchups, whether it was, you know, getting the right hitter in against a certain pitcher or whether getting the right pitcher in against a certain hitter. He always seemed to know what the best, chance what would give his team the best chance to win and he he came up winners more often than losers especially against the cubs and now you look at the cubs 
they have an excellent farm system. They have a lot of young players who are knocking at the door. If they were going to sign Bellinger to a really long contract, that would create a log jam at some of these positions. And, you know, I think, I think they think as an organization that Pete Crow Armstrong will be, will be their starting center fielder in a few years and that they'll have options at first base who are going to be excellent. So, yeah. you know, they can make use of him right now because a lot of these guys aren't quite ready yet. But, uh, but, but, you know, I, I think ultimately for the, for the here and now, for the short term, what I love about having him in the lineup is that when he comes to the plate, he is this six foot five left-handed power hitter. And he gives that lineup presence and it needed some of that presence. It needed that big stick in the middle that other teams had to deal with. Right. And I think for this year, they're going to be very, very good. I think they're the best team in that division. That'll be, you know, we'll have to figure that out. But, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, Picota is saying that the Cardinals will will best the Cubs this year. Uh, we shall see. I agree with you. The one thing I do like about the Cubs is I have always liked is they are defensively as good as any team in the National League. They've yeah. got a great up the middle. They got a, if, if Armstrong is playing center field, they could have the best little diamond that Sparky used to talk about shortstop, second base, center fielder and catcher, you know, uh, in, yeah. in, in the game. So, um, I mean, Suzuki and Hap is one a gold glove. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. I mean, Morel is a bit of a question at third base, but he I think is. third base is a question period. There could be a, I'm reading, there could be a rookie that starts by the end of the season. Um, we'll there's see. a guy I mean, in double A that will lit up double A at that third base. And they're looking at him. I can't, I can't think of his name right now, but the point is the Cubs are in a good position. Um, you know, um, I think they got Bellinger for a steal, but I also kind of agree with you. I think it's a Band-Aid solution. But Bellinger isn't part of the five-year plan. I'll bet you right, he's not. Right, so right. Um, what's going on in Philadelphia, Leo? Well, it's interesting. You know, the Phillies for the last 20 years or so had this promotion. They would do it once or twice a week where they would sell hot dogs for a dollar, dollar hot dogs. What a great idea. But they're doing away with this. Yeah. And, you know, initially I was thinking, well, they can't go selling hot dogs for a dollar. They're going to go broke. They obviously <laughs> did it because they were losing money. No, that's not why they got rid of it. Right. Why did they get rid of it, Tom? Well, it turns out that a hot dog is perfectly designed for flight. Yeah. It travels like a rocket ship. Yeah. And Philadelphia fans being the fans that they are in Philadelphia. Remember, these are the fans that threw snowballs at Santa Claus. Um, they uh, they started using them as projectiles uh, yeah. at the last one, all in good fun until yeah. someone loses an eye. And, and in fact, I would find that that would be even more insulting than losing an eye is having to tell people afterwards, I lost my eye to a hot dog. Yeah, to a uh, flying you know, hot dog. Uh, to a flying hot dog. It's kind of a, makes for a very good story. But the point is, it was dangerous. There's precedence here. And so I go back to Cleveland to 1974. Yeah. And they had 10 cent beer night. On the face of that, <laughs> great idea, right? Yeah, but uh, but nine arrests later, and and literally thousands of dollars of damage done to the stadium. Um, they made it a very wise decision that there would be no more ten cent beer night. They did the same thing in Detroit, by the way, about five years later. And in fact, 
it was so bad in Detroit in center field uh, up in the bleachers that they were, that was the first stadium to come up with no beer after the seventh inning. Like they started shutting down because of, so there's precedence in these, in these promotional things. First of all, I guess I'm an old man. A dollar sounds like a lot for a hot dog. Seeing how how bad it is for you, it almost should be free. But you know that's a whole other subject. But so I, I again, uh, the Phillies had to cancel their promotion. It wasn't done for monetary reasons. It was done for sanitary reasons. It was done because <laughs> their fans are so badly behaved. Now I guess you can still get two hot dogs for one on certain nights. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yes, but but it's still. $8 for two hot dogs versus, you know, one. And, and, you know, when you're buying them for $1, then, you know, throwing it onto the field doesn't seem like such a bad idea. Well, no, <laughs> these were being thrown at other fans. That's the yeah. part of the problem is that people were getting mustard all over their Sunday best. So oh, God, what, a what, what, I mean, and this is the, this is the fan base. Well, you know, in the vet, didn't they have a jail and a judge yes. underneath yes. the stadium because the fans were so unruly? Right. Correct. That's crazy. Correct. That's just crazy. But if you ever well, seen they also it, somebody lived underneath that stadium too. We did a whole show on that. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyhow. We lived in a storeroom underneath yeah. the stadium. But that's you know Philadelphia. And Correct. have you ever seen a game there? Any game there? You have you? Uh, no, I haven't. I've never. I've never. I don't think I've ever even been to Philadelphia. Oh, I've been to Philadelphia many times, but I never saw a sporting event there. No. But anyhow, we digress. Do you have a film for us for next week? I sure do. And uh, it's it's uh, I do have a movie and it is an Oscar nominee, but it is not an Oscar nominee for best picture. Um, It is an Oscar nominee for best short. And that is the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. You'll be able to see this on Netflix. This is a a Wes Anderson film uh, starring Ben Kingsley and. Benedict Cumberbatch and Ralph Fiennes is in it and it is really good. I think you're going to love it. Only 40, 45 minutes long, but uh, based on a Roald Dahl story, I think you're going to like this. All right. Good choice. Um, I'm a huge fan of Wes Anderson. So your choice uh, is also Oscar nominated. This is um, uh, the zone of interest. Okay. Okay. Zone of interest. All right. I had to see it. So now, so do you. All right. I'm looking forward to this one too. All right. So until next week, for my good friend, Tom Hockney, I'm Leo Fontana, and we are the two peas in a podcast. Lately, I've been thinking how much I miss my lady, now Marina's in a car. Washing out the cattle town